The Shakespeare Society and PlayShakespeare.com presents Shakespeare Talks. Shakespeare Talks. Uh, my name is Davis McCallum. I'm here with Ron Rosenbaum, author of a new book called The Shakespeare Wars, which has recently come out in paperback. He's a noted columnist and essayist, and his pieces have appeared in the New York Times Magazine and the New Yorker, Harper's, and uh, lots of other publications. He's also the author of a book called Explaining Hitler, which was a big success several years ago. Uh, Ron, thanks for meeting with us today for the Shakespeare Society. Well, thank you, Davis. Um, so, uh, I, I first would like to say, um, you know, how this um, uh, podcast came about. A couple of about a month ago, I was doing a, um, a rehearsal project for the Shakespeare Society for an upcoming production of Henry V, and I was carrying around Ron's book. And um, uh, one of the actors was saying, well, "What is this book that you've got?" And I said, "Oh." This is this terrific book. Everybody who's interested in Shakespeare should read this book. And I mentioned to Michael Sexton that he should um, find some way to, to put his um, uh, Shakespeare Society members onto this book. And, um, and uh, a month later, we find ourselves here at this podcast. John Simon wrote in the New York Sun about Ron's book, everyone seriously interested in Shakespeare must read it. Anyone even mildly interested should. Mr. Rosenbaum possesses a relentlessly inquiring mind, a vivid style a welcome sense of humor, and an impressive knowledge of not only Shakespeareana, but also much else besides. And uh, I, I thoroughly second that opinion, uh, a rare confluence of opinion between myself and Mr. Simon. <laughs> Would like to start off by asking you what might be the kind of central question in the book. Um, uh, you say that the book kind of grew in a, in a very unexpected way out of your investigation of the explaining Hitler question in which one of the central questions in that book is whether um, uh, Hitler as an instance of evil is on a kind of continuum uh, in history further than, than other instances, but on, on a same line, on a well, one line. Well, in Hitler's studies uh, and in other kinds of studies, it's called the exceptionalist question. And in Hitler's studies, it was whether Hitler was on the continuum of other evildoers just at the far, far end, a really, really, really bad guy, or whether he represented some separate realm you know, of his own, of radical evil that some people have called it, uh, unlike other evildoers. Um, and it's uh, a contentious question. I'm very conflicted about it myself. But it's funny. I, Funny, but at the end of the uh, writing explaining Hitler, I found myself in a really dark depression. You can imagine why, 10 years locked in a room with Hitler. Um, and uh, the only way I, I found that I got out of it after several months um, uh, was by listening to Shakespeare tapes. Um, I played them continuously. Uh, as I walked around the city, I carried a boombox of audio tapes from room to room in my apartment. And it made me think of the exceptionalist question uh, in Shakespeare. Uh, is Shakespeare just a very, very, very good author on the continuum of other great authors, Tolstoy, Goethe, etc., um, Joyce? Uh, or uh, does Shakespeare in some way represent some transcendent, some separate 
realm of his own. And uh, again, it's something I'm very conflicted about, but I'm interested in explaining Hitler was sort of the study of conflict of uh, scholars over important controversies and uh, uh, the Shakespeare Wars is the same kind of thing. I've sought out the most, what I think is the most brilliant and thought-provoking scholars, some of whom were in the university, to my surprise, uh, since I have a love-hate affair with the academia, and some are directors. I think directors are underrated as the real scholars of Shakespeare because they have to put it on. They have to like, take the words and put it, put them on their feet, as they say. And uh, and so I feel like I've learned an awful lot from uh, Shakespearean directors. Oh, that's terrific. So. Uh, what's, where do you come down on the exceptionalist question then, Ron? Uh, I don't think it's one that can, you can give a, uh, an absolute answer to. I, uh, I feel that the measure of it is this. Uh, Christopher Ricks, the, uh, who's a great English literature scholar, said that the, uh, you judge value in art by whether it not or not it continues to repay attention. And what I found that with Shakespeare, I've reread it and reread it and reread it, sometimes all the history plays, sometimes all the tragedies at once, sometimes other orders, sometimes randomly. Each time I've reread a play, I felt myself hurled to uh, sort of another quantum level of understanding or depth of uh, meaning in it. And uh, that hasn't happened over and over again with other playwrights. Now, to say that that could happen endlessly or infinitely is uh, impossible to say. I mean, then I suppose Shakespeare would be truly exceptional. But I, I think uh, the possibilities will continue to unfold as long as I live. So um, in all, for all practical purposes, I, I'd say he's certainly uh, exceptional in that sense. Well, it's interesting that you referred to the kind of ecstatic experience that a person can have seeing a great actor uh, in a Shakespearean role or, or reading or reading a play at home, uh, because in the book you, you kind of trace these twin ecstatic experiences that kind of um, changed your life, you say, and, and turned you on to Shakespeare for a lifetime. Um, uh, would you tell our audience about those, those two experiences? Yeah, I, I think people in the audience may have a similar kind of experience. I've found that, that most Shakespeareans, widely defined, are people who have had some kind of initiating experience. And uh, I had two. I mean, one, one was, I'd say, the, the most central and important one was seeing, lucking out, one of the luckiest things that ever happened to me, uh, seeing Peter Brooks. Royal Shakespeare Company production of Midsummer Night's Dream on the weekend it opened uh, in Stratford-on-Avon. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, before then I had not been a, a huge Shakespearean uh, person. I mean, I'd been a literature, English literature major at Yale, but more metaphysical poets, et cetera, et cetera. I did have one uh, as you say, kind of transformative previous experience at Yale when I was teaching, I had a graduate fellowship, I was teaching a class as a freshman, the sonnets, and I was writing sonnet 44 on the board, or was it 45? Um, uh, it was one of the ones in which Shakespeare and the lover are present and absent, and I was, you know, I was banging the chalk between the words that indicate presence and absence, and so showing students the complexity of it. And I had this 
moment that I still can't quite explain in rational terms, but I felt like the poem began reading me. I was, I was being dislocated from presence to absence. It was almost a, a physical experience. It was a uncanny, eerie, I don't know how else you want to explain it, but it made me think that, uh, for one thing, I learned a lot about the sonnets. I felt that in some way, you know, the wordplay of the sonnets, the ambiguity of the sonnets um, is in some way designed, or one purpose of it is to induce that kind of dislocating experience, uh, which is the dislocating experience you feel when you're in love. Are you with the person, really, or not? You don't know, back and forth, that sort of thing. So, um, so anyway, I had that, but, but it was really the Peter Brook, which, um, you know, it was the first time I'd seen great Shakespeare on stage, and, but I don't think it was only that. I think it was, uh, and I've heard this from many people over the years who saw Peter Brook's uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. It went on a world tour, played in the U.S. a lot. That it was, uh, you know, transformative for them. And when I saw it on Broadway, there was an amazing moment when uh, the uh, theater caught fire in the fifth act wedding scene. The torches, for, torchbearers for the uh, wedding feast. Uh, accidentally let the curtains on fire. Um, and uh, The actors really had a, a kind of great time playing the wor with the words as the sprinklers put the fire out, you know, hot ice and wondrous strange snow to the flakes floating down. And, um, but to me, it was a metaphor for the incandescence of that performance. I mean, it literally, well, metaphorically, set the theater on fire. So uh, you talk about its incandescence, and as somebody who didn't get to see it and has heard about this dream, for my whole life in the professional theater, what was it about that production that distinguished it from the other, you know, legendary productions of Shakespeare? Well, what, I'm, gl I'm glad you heard it from other people because for a long time I thought, "Am I crazy?" You know, uh, because it really did initiate me into a whole cycle of reading all of Shakespeare over and over again. Once you've see, had that initiating experience, you know, you need to see it on the text. I don't think you can easily go from text to theater, you know, uh, but, but in any case, um, what was it about the production? I think that um, it had something to do with the complete offhand mastery of uh, the verse speaking, the voice, uh, and I've spoken to um, uh, the voice uh, uh, teacher who was responsible with Peter Brook for uh, Cicely, what's her last name? Cisberry. Uh, Cisberry, yeah, uh, sorry. Um, Cisberry, uh, uh, who participated in the long rehearsal period before that production went on. And, uh, and I, I saw something in her method when she was uh, training a, a Karen Coonrod's troupe to do uh, Julius Caesar. Uh, and it, to me, it had something to do with. Uh, the interchangeability of voices, how the whole company became one voice that spoke in different tongues. I don't know. I mean, it, it's sort of mystical, but sort of also mechanical. Um, it was a really interesting combination of things. But you felt that, uh, and this is the amazing thing that I think almost defines great Shakespeare. When you when you you see an actor or an actress, and you don't feel they're reciting, uh, you don't feel they're uh, reading their lines you feel that the words are torn from them for the first time. They've never heard them before, but they're this sort of inevitable product of uh, 
the moment on stage. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think that was the amazing thing to me about uh, Brooks' production. I'd never seen that before. And, you know, probably highlighted by the f when the theater caught fire, that sense of uh, singular eventfulness. Yes. Uh, and you want to cultivate that in actors, uh, uh, even when the theater's not on fire. Yes. And, <laughs> I think that's uh, probably your hardest job as director. Michael Langham has a great phrase that speaks to just what you just talked about, that, you know, the pleasure of seeing a Shakespeare play is being in the room with white hot thought and um, uh, you know it sounds like that's what Cicely Berry and, and Peter Brook were able to achieve in that production the, the real easeful sense that um, these words were being coined right here in front of the audience yes I mean uh, coined uh, you know related phrase to coin is newly minted um, yeah. at in the moment yes I think that's definitely uh, and it's not easy you know and there's a you know a big argument about how you get to do that and I think one of the other controversies I deal with in the book is uh, about verse speaking specifically how you speak Shakespeare's iambic pentameter line because uh, Sir Peter Hall who was the founder of the Royal Shakespeare Company had this uh, what seemed to me at first slightly obsessive uh, crusade that everyone was speaking Shakespeare wrong just about except three or four directors and 50 actors knew the secret which was that you had to have a slight pause at the end of the iambic line and uh, it gave the line its own aesthetic unity there were all sorts of reasons Hall gave, but never quite made sense to me. I mean, it does in a sense that, like, it, I compared it in my book to one of Alexander Pope's jewel box-like couplets, so that mm -hmm. all the, everything resonates within that one line, um, and uh, it gives the integrity of, like, he calls it uh, uh, line integrity or something like that. Um, but uh, director Barry Adelstein sort of had a, a different way of explaining it, which relates to what we were just talking about, when he said that the end of the line, the pause at the end of the line, is the pause where the actor thinks up what he's going to say next. <laughs> um, and suddenly that made a lot of sense. And when you go back and read Shakespeare, you can you know, read it to yourself, read it aloud, whatever. Uh, it's a heuristic device. Obviously, the actor doesn't think it up. Mm -hmm. But uh, on the other hand, if it's a good production, he's at that point where that line almost is inevitable. But it gives also a fresh energy to each new line that if you run around them or you try to do them too naturalistically, mm -hmm. um, you, can, uh, you can lose. And certainly Shakespeare did write that way. You know, you can play with it, you can ignore it, and go around it, et cetera, et cetera. But it's... Uh, it's there at the start. Perhaps also what that, what that ideally gives is a sense that the actor is selecting these exact words to express that idea, which, which brings into the room a sense of, of wit and playfulness, yeah. which, is, um, which is often lost. I mean, we were talking before we started recording about the, um, the difficult transition that often happens when you're taking a Shakespeare play from the rehearsal room to the theater and you know the the kind of flattening relationship between language and meaning that happens when an actor yes. has to fill a 1500 seat house. I have to say I've, I've seen like some of my best Shakespearean experiences have been uh, backstage watching rehearsals, watching uh, actors make choices of the way that lines could be done. I remember uh, seeing uh, Brian Kulik's production of Winter Stage at the Public Theater and he uh, 
uh, was backstage uh, with these great actors, including uh, Bronson Pinchot as Autolycus and, um, and and Michael Stubar. Uh-huh. Um, and they were uh, the, the 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 old the old man, the young man, and the uh, the thief. Um, and their comic bits were just so great. Um, and uh, but there were about five different ways these lines could be funny, or five different ways they could be taken. And uh, you you did feel a kind of loss when finally it was put on stage, and they chose one, and it was good. And but this was this sort of throwaway bit of comic uh, stuff, you know, and you don't pay attention to it. And then you see how much is there when really good actors can show you five different. Uh, uh, ways in which these lines have resonance and and beyond the superficial funny you know there's uh you know depth there too you know and uh, so uh yeah rehearsals can be really exciting i think yeah um one of the things i was most interested in, in the book is is um you know uh the 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 figure of ron rosenbaum in the book is this kind of um edgy enthusiast who goes around uh searching in this kind of forest of Shakespeare wars and um, uh, tracks down some of those figures that he that he admires most, one of which is Peter Brook and another is Stephen Booth, whose famous edition of the sonnets uh, is remarkable for the way in which it um, advocates for a kind of both and ambiguity so that every phrase, as you were talking about with your ecstatic experience at the blackboard at Yale, it just kind of shimmers with multiple different Yes, uh, I mean, uh, I think both and ambiguity as opposed to either and ambiguity is one of the great advances in Shakespearean studies of the past century. Um, because uh, for centuries, uh, scholars have wanted to uh, reduce a, pos- a word that had possible multiple meanings to the right single meaning, mm-hmm. when in fact... Uh, uh, Shakespeare becomes just so much more resonant and uh, exciting when you allow a word or a phrase or line or scene to have multiple uh, ambiguities so that it's not either this or that, but uh, both and or or many and. And I think the question Stephen Booth raises, and Booth's uh, edition of the sonnets is worth everyone getting hold of. It's 154 pages of 154 sonnets, um, then about uh, 300 pages of footnotes on them. And the footnotes are a total delight. It's so smart. And each of the footnotes unfolds the sort of, as you say, shimmering uh, interplay of ambiguities and uh, the kind of uh, uh, dislocating effect that the sonnets have on the brain, as they did on me when I was a poor Yale grad student. And thought I was having a mystical experience. I mean, I think that that's there in the sonnets. And I mean, one, of the, one of the things that, that Booth's criticism raises, because it's so fecund, it's so filled with uh, uh, potentialities, is that are the potential of potential meanings limited or unlimited? And I think they are, they're not unlimited. You know, there are, you know, real limitations, but we may not have found them yet. Uh, I like that idea. I mean, one of my favorite parts of rehearsing a Shakespeare play is being at the table at the beginning and trying to, um, you know, answer that vexing question of why the character needs these exact words now. And often it unfolds into uh, many different meanings. And then, then there's this, as we were discussing a moment ago, this this choice making period where you seem like 
uh, eventually an actor has to jettison the fourth, fifth, and sixth meaning in order to find something that's communicable to an audience and, and, and playable. The other thing you mentioned about Booth that I was excited about as a director is, uh, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, he said something about finding the part of the play which seems conspicuously... Um, uh, conspicuous irrelevant. Conspicuous irrelevant. Yeah, but what Booth uh, likes to look for, um, and I don't know if the, I, I don't think it's his term. It's a term I first heard at Yale, and I cannot track down where I first heard it. But uh, uh, the idea is that uh, all sort of awkward, uh, hard to uh, get at nuggets of, of Shakespeare. Uh, that some find fault with, particularly in the late plays where the language is much more entangled and clotted and mm -hmm. stuff like that. There are two attitudes you could take to it. One that, uh, you know, Shakespeare wasn't uh, taking much trouble to make things clear to us, mm -hmm. or that it's our fault for not really spending enough time to see how much is there, or clearly there, but, uh, you know, takes a bit of work or a bit of... Uh, Empathy or sympathy um, to uh, to get to, and uh, but is encoiled within. Uh, but isn't the first possibility also uh, uh, true that Shakespeare perhaps becomes less interested in the later plays in in taking us by the hand and and spelling it all out for us in an explicit way? Do, do you see his interest in the clarity uh, for an audience? changing or even well, waning? It, it, as he it may on? just mean that he himself became intellectually more complex or he wanted to do more challenging things with language than he had. And also, you know, it, not an uh, inconsiderable factor was that uh, in his later career he switched from the outdoor globe to doing most of his plays in the indoor Blackfriars mm -hmm. Theater. Um, and in an indoor theater you have a chance for the audience to be less distracted, to pay more attention to the language. So it might have been the venue as well. Um, I think it's a sign of his greatness that he's someone who was subject to human mistakes and yet can do so many transcendent things with language. Mm -hmm. One of the other uh, skirmishes, battles, even wars that you're talking about in this book, is the controversy in the Academy over whether Shakespeare was revising his plays and whether perhaps that might be one of the reasons why we have multiple versions of some of his yes, this greatest is like plays. Yes, really one of the... Uh, it's, it's a battle between gangs of Shakespearean scholars that has uh, lasted for three decades now. And it's really important because uh, we do have... Uh, two versions of uh, King Lear, uh, the 1608 quarto and the 1623 folio. And we do have uh, three versions of Hamlet, really, the 1604 quarto and the 1623 folio. And just to focus in on uh, uh, one example, which I actually used at, uh, during an evening uh, uh, with the Shakespeare Society, I think it was titled uh, A Question of Genius, um, were, uh, was the uh, example of the final dying words of Lear and the final dying words of Hamlet. We have two versions of each. Why do we have two versions? It's not clear um, from, uh, you know, what pr whether Shakespeare himself revised the earlier version or theater manager, actor, whatever did. Uh, but there are... Uh, 
a great many of big and small differences in both plays. But just to focus on the last words, you know, the last words of uh, uh, Lear were uh, in the 1608 quarto, where it left you with um, no hope. He puts the feather up to uh, uh, dying Cordelia's mouth, hoping to see a breath of life still remaining. I mean, you remember he's holding her in her arms, he's just brought her from uh, where she's been hanged um, and uh, after the tide of battle turns two or three times. Anyway, here he is howling with grief and he holds the feather up and uh, hopes to see something and doesn't. Um, uh, you know, a terrible moment uh, if you play the 1608 Cordo because there's no redemption there. There's just death by misfortune and tragedy. And uh, in the 1623 folio version, however, you have uh, some of the most beautiful lines in Shakespeare. Lear holds up the feather to uh, Cordelia's lips and says, look here, look at her, look her lips, look there, look there. Um, and uh, those last lines, look there, look there, you know, when a, a great Lear does them can be inexpressibly beautiful. Or they can be, uh, on the other hand, the sign of Lear's further delusion and madness. If, if you see them as uh, beautiful, you see, what you're seeing is a final reunion. Cordelia does live, or Lear believes Cordelia loves live, uh, uh, that, that, that uh, his daughter lives, that he sees the feather move, um, and at least in his own mind, shares a final moment of reunion with her that redeems all sorrow. Or, you know, she may be dead, he doesn't see it, but he imagines it. Um, or it could be he, uh, it's just another instance of his madness. A number of ways you can play it, but it's a whole different play with that ending, uh, with the final dying words of the main character, one of the great characters in all of Western literature, Lear. Uh, how does he view life, death, the justice and mercy in the universe, and uh, here at least we're given some possibility of redemption if we want it, uh, that wasn't there in the other one. And so it makes you wonder, did Shakespeare go back and revise because people saw the first version and slit their wrists, or uh, um, I gotta give them something, or uh, did some actor do it because it prolonged, it was a beautiful dying moment. Same with Hamlet, the most famous version of Hamlet's final words is uh, uh, the rest is silence and then uh, and the rest is silence in the 1604 version Hamlet dies that's it um, and it's beautiful you know I mean it's there's a lot of reverberatory possible meanings of what that silence is you know welcome dread whatever it's the afterlife he's always feared it's finally there um, but in the Cordo the rest of silence is followed not by silence, but by these four letters, O comma, O comma, O comma, O period. O, 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 O. The ogrons, they're called by scholars who have debated this. And, you know, most, many people think they're the insertion of a hammy actor who wanted to uh, uh, prolong his dying scene with you know, pitiful groans that would get him the uh, sympathy of the audience uh, more blatantly. But on the other hand, you could look at them as thematically apropos because uh, 
Hamlet decrees the rest of silence, and yet these four syllables are torn from him. You know, he uh, uh, is unable to maintain the silence. He's, or, or perhaps it's his vision of the afterlife that he's dreaded seeing for so long. Um, so do you play him or don't you? And, you know, most don't, but Mark Rylance did when he did Hamlet at the uh, uh, Restored Globe. And, uh, you know, they can be made into a beautiful aria of grief with each O meaning a deeper and deeper level of, uh, of grief and sorrow and dread, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, these are the questions that, you know, they're, they're questions that have been raised by textual scholars, but they're really questions for actors, directors, and audiences too about, you know, who Hamlet really is, who Shakespeare really is, et cetera, et cetera. And they, this rev whole revision debate also gets to the, the, the kind of writer that Shakespeare was. Was he a, uh, the Shakespeare that we see from Shakespeare in Love, the uh, sort of uh, devil-may-care wastrel who uh, sent his play scripts off to the playhouse and never thought about it and went back to wenching? Or, uh, or was he a serious literary dramatic artist who cared enough about his plays to to get back the uh, the play script and to pen, uh, uh, you know pencil or penny and uh, changes and there are a lot of changes in Hamlet and um, if you want to see them you could go to uh, www.hamletworks.org and they uh, have a comparison of the the two versions of Hamlet and they show just how many one and two word changes are and and how they change the relationship as as in the um, the scene between Hamlet and the Queen. Uh, in one version, do you question, he asks her, you, uh, you question with an idle tongue or you question with a uh, wicked tongue? Yes, that's right. Um, and uh, in different, one of the central relationships of the play, the Hamlet and his mother, are changed in several small but telling ways. So it's important. Um, I wanted to finish by asking you this question about, it goes to the question of why you wrote the book, but it also is connected to the mission of the Shakespeare Society, which is to promote the enjoyment and understanding of Shakespeare's plays. Do you, um, I mean, uh, a couple of moments you've spoken about your love for Shakespeare with an almost mystical um, vocabulary, that, that there's something ecstatic about it, that there's a bottomlessness to it, that it's transporting, and... Um, I imagine one of the reasons for writing the book is to to try and identify in that pleasure, but also to share it and to have other people experience what you've experienced. Um, do you do you think that the reason why we still want to write about these plays, why they get produced again and again and again, is because there's something um, that Shakespeare is good for us in some way? Do you know what I mean? Or whether or it's just pleasure. Uh, it's that we haven't come to the end of the questions that Shakespeare raises and that uh, asking those questions about what language can do, about what the nature of uh, the moral order of the cosmos is. Lear asked that question. A lot mm -hmm. of his plays ask that question. You know, uh, you know, what makes great art great? What, uh, what, what is it about it? Is it language, staging, plot? cinematic cutting, whatever, all, all these things come together, but I guess I'd come back to the fact that you keep finding questions to ask, and that's good for us, you know, and that uh, Shakespeare can still shake you up, and that's a good thing. Great. Thanks for meeting us today, Ron. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Davis. You've been listening to Shakespeare Talks, brought to you by the Shakespeare Society and PlayShakespeare.com.
Spear Talk.